This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. McManus, you're fucking up my floor, McManus. My dick, you don't have to mop it up again. You lose an eye, you get kicked in the balls, you have a face full of shit, you become a different man. This is a prison, not a democracy. Don't you fuck with me, my brother. Please, sir, may I fuck my wife? Don't you walk away, you cocksucker. Come on, Dad. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. How do you keep that hat on your head? No quote? Right now, we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster. And before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance. Hello everybody and welcome once again to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson and we are hurtling towards the series one finish line as today I'm going to be looking at episode 6, To Your Health. Before I go any further, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen to the show so far, follow the show on social media and for sending in any questions and comments to the show's email. If there is anything that you would like to send in for discussion, do so by emailing the show on insideozpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch through social media using the handle at insideozpodcast on both Twitter and Instagram. I'd especially like to know if anybody that worked on the show has listened so far. I've had a number of interactions with BD Wong and Kirk Acevedo on Twitter and Terry Kinney has also shared information about the show too. So thank you to them for sharing information about the show with their fans and followers. On the day of recording this, I've just received a notification saying that David Zayez has started following the show on Instagram, and it has the blue verification tick too, so it is actually him. He of course plays Enrique Morales in the series, but it's going to be a while until we see him, but I just wanted to say thank you to Mr. Zayez for the follow. So, episode 6 to your health. Originally broadcast on August 11th, 1997, and holding an 8.6 on IMDb, it was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Alan Taylor. Prior to Oz, Alan Taylor was a relative newcomer, having previously written and directed the short film That Burning Question. He also directed episodes of Homicide Life on the Street for Tom Fontana at various points in the show's early run before directing the movie Palookaville, starring William Forsyth in 1995. After that, he moved on to direct four episodes of the TV series Traders in 1996 and 1997. He will direct another episode of Oz in Series 2, so I will cover more of his career when we get to that. But for now, let's get on with the show. Six percent of the total prison population is 55 and older. That's double ten years ago. We say 55's old because criminal life adds about ten years worth of wrinkles. Still, in Oz you get decent food, exercise, regular checkup. And if you don't get whacked, you live longer than you would in your own hood. Yeah, the prison system. It can keep you alive. But it can't take care of you. So we start off in M-City, and Schillinger is handing out the mail to the prisoners. He has a package for Rebida, who takes it off to one side and opens it up. 
It looks to be some sort of cake and he takes a big sniff of it. However, Kenny and another of his crew sneak up on him and steal the cake away and Kenny punches Ribado in the gut and then nails him with a right hook, sending Ribado to the hospital where Gloria is attending to him and we see McManus looking pretty forlorn at the whole situation. We then join the staff meeting where Gloria is making a case for treating the elder inmates differently and she is supported by Sister Pete who says that Oz was designed to keep the young in check but the older inmates like Ribado, he doesn't need to be kept in check so much. Father Raven adds his support to the proceedings and suggests that Unit 2 be turned into a cell block exclusively for seniors. He makes the point that they can sleep together there, eat their meals together, watch the TV that they want to, etc. And, and Leo rather sarcastically says about them being able to play Saturday Night Bingo, which frankly seems like a good idea. I don't really see where he's coming from on that one, unless he just hates the game Bingo. Gloria adds that less stress will help slow down the ageing process and thus help with the prison's medical costs, which Ray backs up by saying that the elders are not a security problem, so fewer officers would be needed. Leah notices that McManus has been uncharacteristically quiet at the meeting, and asks what he thinks should be done. McManus says that he thinks it's a good idea, but it's clear to see, both to the rest of the cast and to us, the audience, that his mind is elsewhere. Leo says that he'll run it by the commissioner and adjourns the meeting. Gloria stays behind and asks McManus if he's okay, to which he says he is. She asks him if he wants to have dinner that night, but McManus questions it and says that Gloria thinks he's an asshole. She starts to say that she doesn't think that, but McManus quickly leaves saying that he doesn't need a mercy dinner. We cut to McManus' office where he's with Kenny, who is restrained in a chair with his handcuffs behind him. McManus tells Kenny that Ribado is in the hospital, but Kenny doesn't seem to care. McManus tells him that he's heard that Kenny is responsible and that he has ears everywhere, so he knows that it's the truth. McManus walks over to one of the office windows and the blinds make a shadow over his face and he says, you don't hit old men, Kenny. The tone in which he says it, coupled with the lighting job, it looks like Clint Eastwood is having some sort of Vietnam flashback. I was half expecting faraway sounding explosions and the end by the doors to come in on the audio. He tells Kenny that he can have his guards kick his ass if he tells them to and they'll gladly do it. Kenny musters all of his swagger and says that he isn't afraid of them or anything else for that matter. McManus shouts, afraid of nothing, and then proceeds to choke Kenny, who obviously can't do anything to protect himself due to being cuffed. McManus gets right into Kenny's face and asks him if he's afraid of dying, and then pushes the chair over. McManus tells the officers to take Kenny away, and they bring Kenny back to his feet, and he's coughing and spluttering. Kenny and McManus exchange a long stare as Kenny is led away. We cut to McManus working out alone in the gym at night, and we see Leo enter with his gym bag. McManus asks why Leo is there. Leo saying that he's there for the same reason as McManus, that being that he likes to work out when no one else is around. McManus says that he'll ignore Leo if he returns the favour. Much like Gloria earlier on, Leo asks McManus if he's okay or not, although I doubt that he wants to take him on a dinner date. McManus asks why everybody keeps asking if he's okay, seemingly unaware that the only person not noticing a change in him is himself. Leo says that he's noticed the change in McManus and that he's been different for the last few weeks. We found out that the proposal for the seniors unit has been rejected, McManus saying that it won't have been the governor who rejected it, but it will have been Devlin, who he refers to as Governor Fuckwad. Leo says that Devlin is almost out of office, referring back to the scandal that was reported in the last episode. And he also says that he's heard rumours that McManus is taken to sleeping in his office and never leaving the prison grounds. He says that he's been dancing down the hallways for a long time and has seen Oz completely change people, not just the inmates. And says, if you're not careful Tim, Oz will nick away at your soul. McManus leaves and the only thing that he seems to have taken away from all of this is that this is the first time that Leo has ever called him Tim. So this is another scene in which we get a little bit more of an insight into McManus and Leo as people as well as their relationship with each other. Also in this scene you get to see how good shape Ernie Hudson is in. He was 51 when this was filmed and he is absolutely jacked. 
Small detail as well, when you see McManus and Leo both doing their incline bench press workout, it was interesting to see that Leo was lifting twice the weight that McManus was, perhaps symbolic of McManus's weakening mental state. So we see McManus go to the M-City control station and he takes a long, hard look at his creation as we fade to black to end the scene. We come back up on the following morning and see Groves working in the hospital, bringing Rebido his breakfast. How you feeling? I can't stay here anymore. In the hospital? In Oz. Why? I'm afraid. Of what? Them, the young. When I first came to Oz, we treated our elders with dignity, but these kids, it's all different now. I've decided to leave. Leave? Escape. <laughs> How are you gonna do that? God will show me the way. So Rebido tries to make a break for it and heads out to the stairwell. He goes down a level but sees that his exit is blocked by two officers, so he has to head upwards instead. He reaches a door with a sign reading Stan Clear and he tries banging on it to get it to open. Nothing is forthcoming so he heads back to the stairs to try and head up another level. But he is out of breath and Rebido, or more specifically a man who's clearly a stunt double, takes a spill down a flight of stairs, leaving Rebido unconscious. Augustus gives us some narration about how incredible the human body is in terms of its composition, and he's not wrong but that's an entirely different podcast subject altogether. But just ponder this. 99% of the mass of the human body is made up of six elements. Oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, carbon, and phosphorus. And that's before you even start to tackle the human anatomy. So Augustus finishes his narration as we transition to solitary confinement. The officers are bringing the inmates their breakfast, but we see that there is something wrong with Ricardo Alvarez. He is hunched over in his cell, naked, clutching at his bedsheets and just letting out a horrifying wail of a noise. The officers enter to check him over. One asks whether or not Ricardo could be faking or not, but he seems unresponsive to them and just seems to yell out for his mama. As we get a look at his crime flashback that landed him in solitary, which is when he stabbed the Haitian that cut out his son's tongue. We cut to the hospital where Gloria tells Ricardo that they are going to conduct some tests, but he's just talking to himself in Spanish and scratching at his chest. Gloria understands what he's saying and translates, and Ricardo is saying that he has to go home, and she asks him, in Spanish, if he knows what city he is in. Ricardo looks around and he thinks that he is in Havana. We see McManus, Sister Pete, Gloria and Father Ray comparing notes in the staff room, with Sister Pete saying that she has a psychiatric re-evaluation of Miguel Alvarez coming up. Ray tells her that Alvarez is depressed due to his baby dying, and Gloria then breaks the news that Alvarez is probably going to become more depressed because Ricardo has Alzheimer's, which is a neurodegenerative disease which is the cause of around 70% of cases of dementia. It's a horrible condition, and I'll pop some links in the description for this episode where you can find charitable organisations if you or anyone you know has been affected by the condition. Gloria says that she'll tell Eduardo, Ricardo's son and Miguel's father, when he comes in for his orderly shift, and McManus says that he'll tell Miguel, but Ray jumps in and asks if he can tell Miguel instead, to which McManus says that he's always willing to give up the opportunity to deliver bad news. So Ray goes to get Miguel from End City. Miguel, thinking he's in trouble, says that he hasn't done shit, but Ray tells him to come with him. As they leave, we see Beecher, who still has the makeup from his makeover on, and Miguel calls him, and again, forgive me if I don't pronounce this quite right, Marico, which is a Spanish homosexual slur. So we go to Ray's office, where we have Ray, Miguel, Sister Pete, and Eduardo. Miguel asks why nobody had picked up on Ricardo's condition until now, but Ray tells him that with Ricardo being in solitary, he hardly says anything to anyone, and Sister Pete says that there was nothing they could do to stop the disease from forming. 
Miguel asks what happens next, but Ray tells him that Oz is not equipped to care for Ricardo, and that there is nowhere else to send him. Miguel questions why the state doesn't have anywhere to take care of elderly prisoners, and Sister Pete says that the state's attitude towards the elderly, in or out of prison, is hurry up and die. Miguel and Eduardo go to see Ricardo in the hospital while Ray and Sister Pete give them some space. Miguel says, hey, to Ricardo, who repeats it back to him. Miguel tries to explain who they are to Ricardo, but all that Ricardo can do is repeat hey over and over again as Ricardo takes his hand. Sister Pete says that they should release Ricardo, and we get one last shot of Ricardo just saying hey, and he's almost crying as he's doing so. It's almost as though Ricardo knows that he's wanting to say something else, but he can't get the words out. Pete and Ray go to see Leo about getting Ricardo released, to which Leo says that he is a convicted killer. They try to make the case for Ricardo being old, but Leo fires back with, being old doesn't necessarily mean nice. If there's any doubts about that, spend 10 minutes with my mother-in-law, which I thought was a really good line. Ray tells Leo that it costs $21,000 per year to maintain a 31-year-old inmate, and that to care for Ricardo would cost three times that. Leo asks when Ray became so interested in the budget, with Ray saying since he realised the money can be put to better use. Pete makes a case for Ricardo not even knowing where he is, or why he is there, and mentions criminal menopause, which refers to the stage in life where an older criminal loses interest in crime, or no longer poses a threat. Leo makes the point that it doesn't change what Ricardo did, and that life imprisonment means life. He finishes off by saying that if Ricardo doesn't know he's in prison, then he's already free, which was rather dickish of Leo, I thought. I get what he's saying, but it was still a bit harsh. We then get Miguel's psychiatric evaluation with Sister Pete. He says that when he was young, both his father and grandfather came to Oz, and he would wonder what was so great about prison that they would want to leave him and his family to go there. Sister Pete asks him what the word grandfather means to him emotionally, but he says that it doesn't mean anything to him, and that mundane words such as doorknob and pizza mean more to him. As he's saying those words, he almost tears up a little bit, almost like he's suddenly realised that he's never had any sort of relationship with Ricardo, and that because of the Alzheimer's, it's now too late. But Sister Pete tells him that as Eduardo is an orderly in the hospital, there is no reason why Miguel can't be one too, even if it is only in the short term, and that if Miguel takes care of Ricardo, then maybe he can learn to care for him. Before Miguel leaves, he talks about how Ricardo was seen as some sort of legend within the family. He even uses the word God to describe him, and that how his grandmother would show him pictures and share stories about Ricardo. Miguel says that he wanted to be like Ricardo, but he now sees that Ricardo is just an old man rotting away, and that now he doesn't want to end up like his grandfather. Sister Pete tells him that he doesn't have to end up that way, but Miguel says that he doesn't see it going any other way and leaves. I thought that Kirk Acevedo played this scene very well. Like with others in the series, he gets a lot out of his facial expressions to tell the story. We cut back to the hospital and Groves is bringing Rebido another meal. He tells Rebido that he's sorry that he didn't make it out, but Rebido says that the adrenaline rush was worth it and that he felt like he was 25 again, even if it was just for a moment. He tells Groves that he doesn't want his meal and that he'd like a few extra years at the end of his life to be free. We then move across to Ricardo's bed where Miguel and Eduardo are giving him a sponge bath. As Augustus narrates about the reasons as to why people care for the elderly, is it because we actually care for them or is it so that when our time comes we have someone to take care of us? He then closes Act 1 with a bit of a rant about when people tell him, at least you've got your health. At least you got your health. Don't you hate it when people say that? I mean... You lose your job, you lose your wife, you're in prison, and some punk-ass do-gooder says, at least you got your health, like that's supposed to make you feel better. So what if I'm broke? So what if some drug dealer wants to cap my ass? At least I ain't got a tumor. I swear, the next person that says A-L-Y-G-Y-H to me, I'll make sure they ain't got their health much longer.
So Act 2 starts with Sister Pete meeting with Groves, asking him about having nightmares and if he can remember any of them. Groves says that he can't remember them and then starts to complain about a toothache he's had for the last week. Sister Pete tells him to go make an appointment with the dentist, but Groves says that he hates the dentist. Sister Pete asks him if he means Dr. Cochin in particular, or all dentists, and Groves says that it's the entire concept of dentists that he hates. Sister Pete then tells him again to make an appointment, which Groves agrees to do. We then see Gloria with Dr. Cochin, and straight away, this character is amazing. He sees that he has an appointment with Groves, and he's just saying, Oh God, oh sweet Jesus. Gloria finds it funny, and he tells her, He ate his parents, there's no way I'm sticking my fingers in his mouth, my fingers are my livelihood. Gloria says that Groves has been working in the hospital as an orderly, and that he seems harmless, and that she would stick her fingers in his mouth if she had to, but as Groves is in pain, the doctor has to. His no I don't is fantastic, and Gloria then asks him about the Hippocratic Oath. But Cochin says that dentists don't take that oath and that they don't make any promises to anybody. Straight away, this guy is in the running for episode MVP. He's amazing. We see Groves with the dentist's gas mask on as Cochin is hanging by the door, mustering up the courage to come in. He starts the examination, and it's a great scene because you've got Groves who's barely opening his mouth because he's scared, and you've got Cochin who's just looking at the teeth and says, Yep. They're fine. Neither man wants to be anywhere near the other. So Kirchin tries to wrap things up, but Groves tells him that he's in pain, and Kirchin tells him to stop being a baby. Who are you calling a baby? Nobody. <laughs> the show's needed a laugh for some time, and it really delivers here. Kirchin then notices a tooth that has rotted away and says that they're going to have to pull it. He explains about using a needle of Novocaine and the drill. Groves says that he hates drills, and Kirchin tells him... Right now, so do I. And that he wishes there was such a thing as holistic dentistry. Groves once again says that he's in pain, and the doc says that he's about to be in more, and that if he causes Groves any pain, to not bite his head off. I mean, um, it's like Basil Fawlty putting his foot in it, saying the wrong thing. Uh, are these Germans too? Oh yes, but I can do Right, right, here's the plan. I'll stand there and ask them if they want something to drink before the war. Before their lunch! <laughs> Don't mention the war! So Kirchin goes to inject the Novocaine, and he tries to come at it from every angle you can think of, but he just can't bring himself to do it, so he brings his assistant Carol from reception to do it for him. Poor Carol, she's obviously expendable enough if Groves did decide to eat anybody. We then cut to the laundry room where Groves is with Scott Ross, looking at the removed tooth, and says about how that chewed on his mum. Scott then says that Groves should sell his tooth to a collector, as he might be able to get some decent money for it. He lists some things that somebody might collect, and then mentions that there are some people that collect crime stuff. And he's not wrong, there is a huge market out there for crime memorabilia. I did a quick Google search and found on supernaut.com, home of Supernaut True Crime Collectibles, you can buy a signed picture of Charles Manson, which also includes a tracing of his hand that will cost you the bargain price of $1,000. I would have thought that would have been more now that Manson has passed away, while the 1991 booking Polaroid picture of Jeffrey Dahmer will set you back a mere $3,900. Gross finishes the scene saying that if he can get a good price for the tooth, then he's still got 30 more that he can get rid of. Augustus narrates about how the mind is similar to the body in that it is under constant assault, as we see Beecher applying his lipstick with Schillinger looking on. Beecher is looking very drowsy as he is applying it, so he's probably strung out on drugs at this point. We then cut to the cafeteria where we have the Oz Variety Show. We see one inmate playing a makeshift drum kit made from pots and pans with a colander symbol, while another is doing a balloon trick inhaling it through his nose and then pulling it out of his mouth. We see that the audience is full of show regulars as well as extras, and Augustus is acting as the MC for the show. 
He introduces Beecher to the stage and there's a look of shock from the audience. Sister Pete is watching from the side and she puts her glasses on with a look of disbelief. We see a pair of gold high heels walk out and a red dress and Beecher is performing in drag. His hair has been coloured and presumably has been put up to this by Schillinger. He starts to sing I've Got It Bad and That Ain't Good, originally written by Duke Ellington with lyrics by Paul Francis Webster and first published in 1941. It's a song that's been recorded by so many people over the years. If you go to the Wikipedia page for the song, there is a list of notable recorded versions there, but I imagine that that list is in nowhere near a comprehensive one. It's hard to say who recorded the definitive version of the song, but some people who have recorded it included Ella Fitzgerald, Nina Simone, Etta James, and it's that jazz soul style which Beecher sings it here. In fact, that Wikipedia page even lists Beecher in the list of notable artists. I'll post that on the social media pages for you all to see. Beecher starts to sing and we can hear the audience whooping and screaming, but their audio drops out and we're left with just Beecher singing the song. Lee Taggerson is actually a pretty decent singer, and I'll probably close the show out with his rendition of the song. We'll hear Beecher sing again, but that won't be for a while yet. So Beecher gets through the performance and the audience are laughing away at him. Adebisi in particular with an awesome maniacal laugh and wild eyes. And we see Schillinger take a look around at the audience. He ultimately seems disappointed, but he also looks a little bit remorseful. Almost like he is realising that he has completely broken Beecher. And that maybe he is starting to go too far. We see Beecher leave the stage and snort some heroin in the corridor. Sister Pete sees him doing this as Beecher turns around and notices her. Sister Pete has seen the effects of drugs on Beecher, but this will have been the first time that she's actually caught him in the act. She goes to see McManus and says that she's started to figure out why Beecher is doing the drugs, saying that Beecher sees himself as a victim and that he isn't going to improve unless he can take control of his life. McManus raises the point that Beecher is in prison and that he doesn't have control of his life, and Pete says that they need to remind him that there is another victim in all of this, that being the young girl that Beecher killed whilst drink driving. We get a quick flashback to that incident before we then see Beecher head to the visitation room, having had the hair colouring washed out and the makeup removed, therefore looking more like himself. And he meets the victim's mother, Mrs Rockwell, played by Catherine Maisley. They're both behind glass, so have to communicate through the phones, but the scene is shot in a very good way. Rather than just doing the conventional over-the-shoulder shot and cutting between each person as they speak, you see the reflection of both characters, so you are constantly seeing their actions and reactions. Rockwell is doing all of the talking, and even shows Beecher a picture of her daughter, which upsets Beecher. She says that she isn't sure why she came to see Beecher that day, and at the trial she was sat behind him and could barely see his face, and that she just wanted to finally see him. She's like a tractor beam and looking directly at Beecher the whole time, while he struggles to look at her and keeps looking down and avoiding eye contact. She eventually lashes out and is led away, saying that she hopes Beecher dies in Oz, and that's the only time that Beecher is really looking into her eyes. We then move into Sister Pete's office, where she is meeting with Beecher, trying to get some answers as to why Beecher has allowed himself to feel this way. I don't know. Maybe I let Schillinger treat me like dirt because I deserve to be punished. Because I... I killed Kathy Rockwell. Because I destroyed her family. On my own. And you hate yourself for that. Yes. I guess I hated myself back before, too, you know. I, I hated myself, so I drank too much. And then 
I hated myself for drinking too much, so to punish myself, I drank more. While Beecher has been explaining himself, he's been playing with the lipstick in his hand and when he says, I don't want to hate me anymore, he stabs at his hand with the lipstick, similar to what he might have done had he had a knife with him. It's an interesting bit of imagery. We then see Beecher return to his pod where Schillinger is reading a book. Schillinger tells Beecher to stop thinking that he's fooling him and he knows that the only reason Beecher managed to get through the variety show was due to the drugs. He tells Beecher that he doesn't want him doing drugs, and Beecher tells him that he is sorry. But Schillinger says that he is sorry, and then gives Beecher a t-shirt. Beecher puts the shirt on, and it is emblazoned with the flag of the Confederacy. More commonly known as the Army of Northern Virginia Battle Flag, it is the flag most associated as being used by the Southern States, headed by Robert E. Lee during the American Civil War in 1861-1865. After the war, the flag's revival in the 1950s and 60s came about due to the American Civil War centennial commemorations, but was used to show opposition to the Civil Rights Movement as far back as 1948, when it was used by the Dixiecrats, headed by Senator Strom Thurmond. The displaying of the flag and the image of the flag itself is still a controversial subject in the present day due to its links to racism, slavery, treason, segregation and white supremacy. Hence why Schillinger is using it in this scene. So Beecher tries to remove the t-shirt but Schillinger tells him to leave it on. Beecher says that if any of the black inmates see him wearing it that they will kill him and Schillinger laughs saying that he knows that. Beecher asks what all this is about and Schillinger says that there is a new kid in town and they look down at Scott. Beecher says that's great and that he's happy for Schillinger and that he's willing to move to another pod. But Schillinger tells him no and that he doesn't want a black man to have Beecher instead. Or words to that effect. Schillinger holds the pod door open and tells Beecher goodbye Prague. Beecher practically runs down to the drug pod, his arms covering the motif on his shirt and finds Ryan there. He tells Ryan that he needs his help because Schillinger wants him dead and shows him the t-shirt. Ryan says, well, if you gotta go, you gotta go high. That seems to be his answer to everything. He offers Beecher some PCP, which is a drug that was originally developed as an anaesthetic for operations, but ceased to be used as it can cause hallucinations. Not totally sure how Ryan got his hands on some PCP, he must have developed another drug connection somewhere. We get a news report giving us a little exposition regarding Governor Devlin's trial, saying that he will not step down even if convicted despite facing up to 25 years in prison. The charges he's looking at are for fraud, extortion, racketeering and for the obstruction of justice. We see Beecher head back to his pod and we get a POV shot which is a bit blurry in places, so similar to previous episodes it's mirroring the effects of the drugs for us. He stops on the walkway leading up to his pod and sees Scott talking the Schillinger inside there. He notices a chair down to his side, picks it up and channeling his inner Howard Beale, showing that he is mad as hell and he's not going to take this anymore, runs towards the glass and throws the chair through it metal legs first. Scott just about sees the attack coming so is able to cover up, but Schillinger takes a piece of glass in his right eye. Beecher then starts to shout, yeah motherfucker, how's that? I'm sorry sir, and then starts to climb the barrier as if he's going to jump. We see him start to fall, but it's part of a hallucination as he's pulled back by two officers before he gets that far. Beecher is led away screaming obscenities at Schillinger, who we see clutching his bleeding eye and the rest of the black inmates down below are chanting Beecher's name, overjoyed that the neo-Nazi has got his comeuppance. We cut to a room where Beecher has been strapped down to a stretcher, similar to how Dino Ortolani was in episode 1, and he's screaming for someone to help him. We then cut to the hospital where Gloria is trying to help Schillinger with his eye. 
She says that the glass is quite deep and that she isn't sure if she can save the eye and they need to get Schillinger to the other hospital, Benchley Memorial, which crops up every now and again throughout the series for emergency surgery. As Schillinger is wheeled out, he says that he's going to kill Beecher. We go back to Beecher's room where McManus and Sister Peter are telling him that he needs to go back to the drug counselling and McManus even threatens to transfer him out of M-City. Beecher just keeps telling them to fuck off, so McManus then offers to put Beecher into protective custody, echoing back to episode 4. But Beecher just keeps repeating fuck off to them, ending the scene with a total of 9 fuck offs, before Augustus gives us a monologue about the heart being a muscle to finish off Act 2. You have to go back to drug counseling. Fuck off. If you don't, I'll transfer you out of animals. <laughs> Fuck off. Tobias, we're trying to help you. Fuck off! Look, if you're afraid Chillinger's gonna kill you, I'll place you under protective Fuck custody. Fuck off! Fuck off! Fuck off! Fuck off! Fuck off! Fuck off! You fucks! So moving into Act 3, we see Ryan mopping the M-City floor. Nino comes over and tells him that he's off the Bucket Brigade and they give them up to this guy. I love how he's just this guy, they couldn't even be bothered to give him a name. Nino explains to Ryan about how Dino was great at running the kitchen, comparing it to the running of a Swiss watch. He also says that D'Angelo was good, and that even Markstrom was okay, but he isn't so sure about Adebisi, saying that he isn't as focused as the others were, and he is abusing his privilege. Nino motions over to one of the guards to open up the M-City gate, and he does. Isn't this supposed to be a maximum security prison? Nino just asked for the gate to be opened, and he obliged. I don't know, maybe certain inmates are allowed to have the gates open for their work roles, that's the only storyline explanation I can think of that would make sense, otherwise everyone can just walk out whenever they feel like it. Nino tells Ryan that he's been very efficient with the jobs he's been given, so Nino is placing Ryan in charge of the kitchen. Cut to Adebisi being relieved of his kitchen duties and he isn't happy about it, but Nino says that the food is rotting and Leo is complaining about costs. Adebisi says that he doesn't want to work with Ryan and Nino threatens to send him back to working in the sweatshop, but Adebisi doesn't want that either and is told to shut up. Nino leaves, telling Ryan that it's all yours, and Ryan tells everybody to get back to work as Adebisi goes after Nino. We join Adebisi in Nino's pod, with Nino back in his Buddha position reading the paper. He reassures Adebisi that they're still partners in the drug trafficking, and he tells Adebisi that he has no complaints about that operation at all, but he can't afford to have a poorly run kitchen. Adebisi's main problem seems to just be having to work with Ryan, and Nino tells him to make peace with it any way that he can, because he says that Ryan is running the kitchen, and he says that he'll do it as well as Dino ever did. Adebisi seems to have another idea in mind, though. Cut to a long line of inmates waiting for their meals as the kitchen staff are going at a snail's pace with the serving. Ryan bursts in and tells everyone to pick up the pace, but Kenny sarcastically says that they're going as fast as they can. Ryan then goes to see Adebisi and tells him to listen up. Ryan says that he knows why Nino has put him in charge of the kitchen, saying that Nino is executing the old divide-and-conquer routine, and that if he can keep Ryan and Adebisi at each other's throats, then Nino holds all the power. He wraps his hand with a towel, grabs a glass jar, and smashes it on a metal shelf. He tells Adebisi that they've got the same goal in mind, that being to take over the drug operation from Nino. He then grabs a large can of food and rolls it over the broken glass, breaking the shards down into fine pieces. He says to Adebisi that they have to make Nino think that they're enemies and keep him off guard until they kill him. Adebisi says if they kill Nino, then the mob will kill them. But Ryan says that the mob won't even know about it, and he picks up some of the ground glass, saying that they should put it in Nino's food. 
and if they make it fine enough then Nino won't know that he's eating it, and over time the glass will cut his insides. While when I first watched the series I thought this method was a brutal way to kill somebody, and it is in concept. Upon further research it's been shown that grinding glass into a powder to kill somebody doesn't work. I'm not sure exactly what kind of tests they carried out to test that theory. If you think about it, if you ever go to the beach and just get like one grain of sand in your mouth, you notice it that it's there. If the mouth when chewing can't detect that glass is in there, then chances are that the gut won't detect it either. The only other way Nino could have died from this would have been through chemical poisoning, but that's never mentioned. Ryan specifies about the glass cutting Nino's insides. Having said that, the concept is still pretty brutal. Adebisi holds a piece of the glass to Ryan's neck and calls him one sick motherfucker, Ryan saying that that coming from Adebisi is a compliment. Adebisi tells Kenny to bring Nino's food over and Ryan tells him to get everybody working to full speed, which Adebisi nods to approve the order. The two shake hands, cementing their new alliance. We cut to Sister Pete's office where she's having a meeting with Ryan. She's meeting a lot of people this week. She asks him if he was released from Oz that day, what would he do? Ryan says that he would like to go travelling, and that since he's got to Oz he's been reading vacation guides as the great when taking a shit or wanking before you go to sleep. He says wanking very quietly so as not to offend Sister Pete. He hasn't got a problem saying shit to a nun, but wank is apparently over the line. It's actually quite nice that he has a little bit of respect for Sister Pete that he doesn't want to offend her. I'm sure she's heard every swear word under the sun, but it was nice nice of him to think of her feelings. He says that he wants to go to Morogoro, and much like Pega Pega, Sister Pete knows where that is. I didn't, however, but it's it's in the eastern part of Tanzania. He asks if Sister Pete wants to go with him, but she says that she's twice his age, and a nun. <laughs> Ryan then tells of her growing up in St. Pat's, he never had a nun like her. The only reference I could find to St. Pat's in the New York area was that of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan, which seems to be slap-bang in the centre of New York City. So this must either be another district that's been referred to, or one that's just been made up for the show. Pete acknowledges that St. Pat's is a tough neighbourhood, and Ryan says that he learnt the alphabet the hard way, citing D-E-A-H-I-V-I-O-U. It instantly paints a horrific picture of his childhood. He tells Pete that he's got 12 years until parole and that he is going to walk out of Oz. He is going to survive. We go back to M-City where Groves hands off some drugs to Alvarez. They seem to have moved on from his LSD stamp collection. And we then move over to Ryan playing cards with Nino, although I don't think they're playing Pinochle this time. Nino seems a little agitated and he turns to tell Adebisi that he's making the red sauce too spicy as Ryan and Adebisi exchange knowing looks to each other as if to say that they know that their plan is working. And we fade to black in what I suppose is the end of Act 3 this time? This'll be the first time that we've ever gone beyond the normal three-act structure. Anyway, Act 4, I guess. Starts off with Augustus talking about how he used to be addicted to crack before having his accident. And he then turns to look down at himself in a hospital bed. There's a really weird cut here where they've obviously been focused on Harold and then had to put a body double in place, but it's really obvious that that's what has happened. Not to play armchair director or anything, but if they'd started this segment from another angle, they could have made that look a lot smoother. Augustus talks about how while he was in the hospital that he went through detox and started his counselling once he got to Oz, and says that staying straight and sober is his new addiction. So coming back into the scene itself, Augustus puts on some headphones so he can hear the TV, and we find out that Jackson Verhew, a big-time sports star, is coming to Oz, and Augustus goes off to see McManus. He has to wait patiently at the bottom of the stairs because he can't get up to see McManus in his office because there's no wheelchair access. He mentions about that to McManus, who tells him to put it in the suggestion box. Augustus asks if he can be Verhew's sponsor, saying that he's a huge fan of his. McManus asks, what makes you think that I'm bringing him to M-City? Because like everyone else, you're a star fucker. 
Great line from Augustus. Mamana says that no one can accuse Augustus of being an ass kisser and okays the sponsorship, sealing it with a sign of the cross. Augustus is like a little kid, he's so happy and McManus picks up on it asking if Augustus is sure he can get the marching band sorted in time for Verhue's arrival. We've still seen very little of Augustus, so it was good to get some personality across from him. And this humanised McManus a little bit more too. He hasn't got any reason to deny Augustus's request, so it, it's good that he's willing to reward good behaviour. So we get Verhue's flashback in which we see him having a heated argument with a woman. As they get out of a car, he backhand slaps this woman who falls to the ground. And the doorman of a nearby building tries a flying tackle on Verhue, but he must have been about a foot shorter and about 50 pounds lighter. He had no chance of taking him down. Verhue slaps the woman again before two passing police officers arrest him. Verhue is charged with attempted rape and assault and has a 12-year sentence up for parole in five. So Jackson Verhue is played by Rick Fox. Born July 24th, 1969 in Toronto, Canada to a Canadian mother and a Bahamian father, Fox moved to the Bahamas at a young age. Attending Kingsway Academy in Nassau, he first played basketball for the high school's basketball team, the Saints. Later, when the family moved to the United States, Fox played high school basketball in Warsaw, Indiana. However, when Fox was projected to have a successful season as a senior, the Indiana High School Athletic Association ruled that he had no high school eligibility left, having completed a total of eight semesters between living in both the Bahamas and Indiana, and was therefore not allowed to compete in any further high school games. Despite this, Fox was voted onto the Indiana All-Star team in 1987, despite not playing in his senior year. He then went on to star at the University of North Carolina, where he led the Tar Heels, the nickname given to all the university's sports teams, to the 1991 NCAA Final Four. Fox's professional career started when he was selected by the Boston Celtics in the first round of the 1991 NBA Draft, being the 24th pick overall. As a member of the Celtics, Fox became the first rookie starter on opening night since Celtics legend Larry Bird did the same in 1979. Fox also made the 1992 NBA All-Rookie second team after averaging 8 points per game. By the 1995-96 campaign, Fox had become the Celtics' starting small forward and averaged double-figure scoring. In the 1996-97 season, his last with the Celtics, Fox recorded career highs of 15.4 points per game and 2.2 steals per game, which placed him fourth in the league for steals. Fox, who had very little acting experience, had appeared in two basketball-themed movies, 1994's Blue Chips with Nick Nolte and 1996's Eddie starring Whoopi Goldberg. Living in the Northeast, where Oz was filmed, allowed Fox to take the role of Jackson Verhue during the NBA offseason. However, after six seasons with the Celtics, Fox was released from his contract in the summer of 1997, and shortly thereafter signed with the Los Angeles Lakers. As a result of Fox moving to the West Coast, Fox's availability for filming decreased, and as a result, Jackson Verhue became a recurring character rather than a member of the main cast. We will see him for the remainder of this series, but he will then be used sporadically for the remainder of the show. So we see Verhu arrive with some other inmates, but they're all off to Genpop and are escorted out separately. He's asked by one of the guards to sign an autograph for the guard's son before he's sent to M-City, which he seems to struggle to do because he's still in his handcuffs. Verhu arrives in M-City with Augustus, who is like the cat that got the cream. He's got a big beaming smile on his face. And everybody is all, hey Jackson, what's up? They all want to be friends with the big sports celebrity. Adebisi passes down a basketball and gives Verhu a little wave. While Adebisi may have some sinister intentions, I'm sure that six foot seven Verhu could handle himself if needs be. We cut to the gym where Verhu is shooting some hoops and Augustus comes to find him, but Verhu just wants to be left alone. Augustus says that he just wants to help Verhu get adjusted, but Verhu says that he's spent all of his time getting adjusted due to being from the projects. 
He asks if Augustus is from the Project 2 and says that there are three ways to get out, that being selling drugs, singing, or being good at a sport. Fehu says that he got adjusted by becoming famous and getting rich through his various endorsements, and says that he blew it with the women and that the one thing that he's good at doesn't mean anything in Oz and he throws the ball away and leaves. We then see Vehu getting his work assignment, and he's being asked to clean one of the classrooms, but he's less than enthusiastic about doing so. Mamanus comes over to see what the commotion is about, and tells Vehu that it was explained to him when he arrived that everybody in M-City has a job. Vehu tells McManus to give him another job because he isn't going to be a cleaner, but McManus tells him that he is, picks up the bucket and puts it in Vehu's hands telling him that he doesn't get to choose before walking away. Vehu says that he doesn't do windows, he enters the classroom and then throws the water all over the glass. McManus is on the other side of the glass and, without missing a beat, just tells Vehu, well now you get to clean that up. While Augustus called McManus a star fucker earlier on, and maybe he is to a degree, he also isn't giving Vehu any special treatment, much in the way that he explained to Saeed in episode 1 about how his celebrity status wasn't going to help him in ours. We see Verhu attending a history class on the subject of George Washington Carver, but he doesn't seem interested in learning anything. The teacher dismisses everyone, but tells Verhu that although he's a big shot basketball star, he is going to place him on report if Verhu doesn't pay attention in class. Verhu tells him, go ahead nigger, to which the teacher responds, no my friend, you're the nigger. The teacher is played by Reggie Montgomery in what would be one of his final acting roles, as he would pass away in 2002, aged 54. This is the only episode that he appears in, and it's a shame because in a very short space of time, we see that this character has somewhat of a presence and isn't taking any shit from Verhu. He would have been an interesting addition to the cast. Verhu asks Augustus if he has any drugs, but he tells him that he doesn't, to which Verhu asks what Augustus is good for if he doesn't have any. And we see that Augustus is starting to realise that his sporting hero isn't all that he hoped he would be. We cut to the cafeteria, where Ryan gives Vehu a special meal of fruit, wholemeal bread, and other healthy stuff. Vehu says thanks, but Ryan tells him, no, thank you, I won ten grand on that Bulls game. No idea what bet that would have been to have such a return, but Ryan must have laid down a hell of a stake to get ten grand back from it. The tattoo on Rick Fox's arm here too, the basketball with the 17, isn't a real tattoo. Fox played number 44 while at the Celtics, although when he moved to the Los Angeles Lakers, he was given the number 17 jersey. But you can find a whole load of images of Rick Fox in his playing days at the Lakers, and there is no tattoo there. Saeed comes over, and when Vehu asks him if he wants an autograph, he tells him no, and that his fame means nothing to him other than he is a role model to children, and that carries responsibility. Vehu gets angry and tells Saeed to go preach to someone else. Saeed laughs it off, but says that he and Vehu will talk again. Vehu pushes his dinner away and goes to get some juice where he runs into Adebisi and Kenny, and he asks them who he has to fuck to get high. We then hear another piece from Poet, who is back for the first time since episode one, and he's talking about getting some drugs. Come on, son. Come on, son. Let me squeeze them titties, man. What? Come on. Yo, I've I been, I been fiending for this freedom. Been, I've been begging for the be out, been jolting for the, for the jump over the wall. But all I keep coming back to is them titties, round and firm, for the, for the vein burn. I keep, I keep bugging over the reasons for this shit I yearn. Years in this piece got me wanting the shit that I unlearned. Got me wanting to block it out, forget about, erase it from my think. So Arnold Jackson, more commonly referred to as Poet on the show, is played by Craig Grant, often credited under his stage names either Craig Mums Grant or Mums the Schemer, and is a fixture of the New York poetry scene. 
Oz was his acting debut, and he will have been in his late 20s here. Born in New York City and raised in the Bronx, Grant first rose to prominence in the documentary Slam Nation, which followed Grant and his Poetry Slam team as they competed at the 1996 National Poetry Slam. According to the author, Kristen O'Keefe Otovitz, Grant's work is considered street poetry at its finest. Thoughtful, precise, but not without humour. His work spoke honestly about the life he and his friends lived, and the city that he loved. After a bit of a gap in his appearance in the first series, Poet will appear much more often as we go on. In the IMDb trivia for Oz, it makes reference to certain cast members having a criminal past and having served time in real life, Grant being one of those cast members. However, I was unable to find anything official online about his criminal past, although research into his poems may unearth some details. So we go back to M-City and Augustus finds Vahue underneath some stairs sharing some drugs with Kenny and Adebisi. Vahue asks Augustus if he wants to join them, but Augustus says no, saying that he's been clean for almost two years. But Vahue calls him a pussy and says that one little hit isn't going to kill him. He says that they're reminiscing about the 95 Bulls game. Not sure if that was Ryan's 10 grand game or not, but Augustus remembers that Vahue scored 58 points that night. Vehu says that he also scored a three-way with two cheerleaders. Augusta says that Vehu has always been his hero, with Vehu saying, That's me, a fucking role model. He holds out the drugs to Augustus, who relents and takes a hit of the drugs, and I was really disappointed in Augustus here. Although we haven't seen a whole lot of him so far, you get the impression that he's one of the better inmates in Oz. Obviously he's there justifiably, we've seen that in his flashback. But when you look at the other inmates around him, he is one of the better ones. We get a hallucination scene in which Augustus gets out of his chair and plays some one-on-one against Vahue, even getting the better of Vahue a couple of times. Adebisi takes the edge off the scene by closing it with, you know that's been up Kenny's ass, right? And with that, we go to another staff meeting where McManus, Sister Pete, Ray and Gloria are talking about Saeed. Gloria calls back to the doctor prescribing medication for Saeed's hypertension, but says that his vital signs have yet to stabilise, which McManus concludes to mean that Saeed is not taking his medication, even after he agreed to last time out. Sister Pete says that it doesn't make any sense and Saeed has everything to live for, but Mamana says that Saeed is concerned about the effects the drugs will have on him and that he doesn't want his judgement clouded. Sister Pete asks if Gloria can switch Saeed's prescription, but all the drugs have some sort of side effect and Gloria says that Saeed's blood pressure will explode if he doesn't take something soon. So Sister Pete summons Saeed to her office and tells him not to think of her as a psychologist or a nun, but to think of her as his mother, and then starts to nag about him taking his medication. She tells him that he's crazy to not be taking his medication, but Saeed says that he's far from crazy and that God has given him the will to be drug-free. Straight-edge Saeed would have been an interesting character if Oz had been made today. She tells him that the fact of the matter is that Saeed will die, however Saeed says that his physical condition is part of a greater reality, and that it has been hard but that he is at peace with that and asks why she can't be. Pete jokingly struggles to answer and the pair share a laugh with Saeed saying that Sister Pete is a good woman and wishing her peace. We see another new inmate arrive as we meet Husseini Mashar. Saeed is his sponsor and they embrace each other before heading to M-City. So we get Husseini's flashback and we hear that Husseini is a Muslim convert and his birth name was James Monroe Madison. Interesting point to make here as well, which I didn't mention when we first met Saeed in episode 1. He is also a converted Muslim and his birth name was Goodson Truman. So Husseini has been sentenced to 20 years, up for parole in three, for the charges of attempted murder and assault in the first degree. And we see him and some other men attack some Jewish men as they are leaving a building. We go to M-City, where Husseini is with the rest of the Muslims, justifying his attack as revenge for someone he knew being attacked by a Jew. The case went to court, but as he puts it, the Jew got off, so we had to teach him a little lesson on respect. 
Before he can go any further, Saeed tells the rest of the group to pray. The group moves over to say their prayers, but Husseini tells Saeed that he thinks they need to do more than just pray, and Saeed says, we will, believe me, we will. We then go to the cafeteria later in the day, where one of the group is reading scripture. The group member here is Zahira Reef, played by Granville Adams. He's been a bit of a background character so far, so this is his first credited appearance on the show. He will get his own storyline in the future, so I'll introduce him more when we get to that. So Arif is reading aloud to the group, but Scott, who is sat behind Arif, tells him to shut up and that his bullshit is making him sick. Husseini says not to insult the holy word, but Scott tells him to suck his dick, and with that Husseini starts to head around the table for a fight. As he gets to Scott, Saeed gets between them to prevent the fight from happening. Saeed tells the guards that there is no problem and proceeds to tell Husseini to sit down. Saeed turns back to Scott, apologising for the disturbance, but Scott prefers to cause more trouble by saying fuck you. Saeed holds the rest of the group back as an officer comes in and tells Scott to take a walk if he can't handle that. He says fuck you to the officer this time and is escorted out as Saeed tells everyone to sit down. We see Saeed and Husseini preparing some pillows, so that looks to be their job assignment. They get the essentials ready for any arriving inmates. Husseini says that Scott was insulting God, but Saeed tells him that God does not need Husseini to defend him from a moron, which, again, I thought was a very good line. He tells Husseini that what God needs is for him to rein in his instincts and have a bit of patience. He then finishes by saying that any more fights that Husseini gets in, the more you weaken the holy war we're about to fight. Which sounds very ominous and very out of character from what we've seen so far from Saeed. Husseini asks where Saeed is from, and Saeed tells him that he was born in the ghetto, but that he managed to get out and travelled the world studying the great religions. Husseini thinks, however, that maybe Saeed has been on the mountaintop too long and forgotten his roots, and that maybe Alar has sent Husseini to remind him. Husseini does some sort of shadow boxing move, and there's an awkward silence between the pair as we close the scene. Husseini is then taking a shower and talking to Arif. He thinks that Saeed is getting slow, but Arif says that Saeed knows best. Husseini hints that Saeed may be more valuable as a symbol rather than a leader, to which Arif asks him what he means, but Husseini says that he's just talking smack. We cut to the next morning with the lights coming on, and Husseini is doing his press-ups and his star jumps. As the camera pans up to the top bunk, we see that Saeed is clutching his chest having a heart attack, and he tells Husseini to get a doctor. But Husseini says that this is the hand of God and the will of Allah. Saeed pleads for his help, but Husseini tells him that he must go ahead and die, and he then leaves the pod as Saeed rolls off his bunk and hits the floor. Augustus narrates as we see Ribado and Ricardo Alvarez in the hospital. Adabizi, Ryan and Beach are all taking drugs. Not together, obviously. Augustus himself strung out from drugs, and the show closes with Saeed being wheeled into the hospital, with Gloria compressing his chest and shocking him with the defibrillators as we cut to the credits. All those little aches and pains, eventually, they add up to something. Body, mind. Body, mind. They gotta work together, or they don't work at all. You gotta take care of your body. You gotta take care of your mind. You gotta love your body. Most people don't. Most people hate their bodies. You gotta get your mind to love your body. Even if you're fat around the neck, or even if things don't work like they're supposed to, you gotta love your body. Because it's all you got to hold on to. It's all you got. I'll make a deal with you. I'll love your body if you love mine. So there we go, episode 6 to your health, and we got a genuine cliffhanger with Saeed seemingly at death's door. This is also the first episode in which nobody died, everybody made it to the end. They might be in varying degrees of health, but all were present and accounted for as the credits rolled. 
There were a couple of people that I wanted to give the episode MVP to, but I'm going to give it to Augustus, largely in part to him getting some much-needed character development. While I was disappointed that he relapsed and took some drugs, it was good to see some of his personality shine through in the actual scenes of the show rather than just through his monologues. Honourable mention, as I alluded to earlier, to Dr. Kirchen, played by Nesbitt Blaisdell. I thought he was very good in the limited screen time that he had. Unfortunately, this is the only episode of Oz that he appears in, so I'm a little bit gutted about that. So that is not quite the end of this episode, as I'm going to dip into the mailbag for a change. As always, you can email the show at insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send any message on Twitter or Instagram by following the handle at insideozpodcast. So this question was sent to me by Liam, who you can find on Twitter at the handle at Scouse Wrestling. That's S-C-O-U-S-E and the word wrestling. And they asked, what are my thoughts on other prison dramas? And they specified the Netflix series Orange is the New Black and ITV's Bad Girls. Now, first off, I haven't watched the latest series of Orange is the New Black, so I can't comment on how that has turned out. But I have watched the rest of the series. Much like other dramas in this day and age, it's a bit hit and miss. Sometimes the writing is a little bit shonky. One thing that I have read about the latest series is that the timeline has been a bit messed up due to the last two series being set in 2016, and the previous series, the fifth series, taking place over a short time after that. And as you've come into this sixth series, we're still at that point in time. But they're somehow making references to things that have occurred in 2018, so that's just poor writing and forcing either topical or pop culture references at the detriment of your show. I feel that it could also benefit from having a few less episodes in each series. I've always felt that eight episodes per series in the case of Oz, with the exception of the 16 episode fourth series, and I'll talk about that when we get to it, is perfectly fine for the stories they wanted to tell. Orange is the New Black has a similar runtime per episode, yet has nearly double the amount of episodes, and at times suffers because of that. To borrow a phrase from Old Man Jones from the Squared Circle Gazette podcast, if less is more, how much more would more be? If you think back to episode 2 when Donald Groves is talking about being caught in the morgue and how he was sent to the hole, and it happens again a few episodes later, but we don't need to see that happen every time. A lot of shows these days, and this is partially down to audiences and their complaints online, shows have to show you every minute detail of something, and we'd probably see Groves get caught in the morgue again and again for completion's sake. And if a show doesn't show it, or they change it slightly, then someone gets online and has a moan about it. If you're adapting from a book, those online fans are the worst. Ugh, that's not how it happens in the book, and why has that been changed? I mentioned The Walking Dead before, that's a show that could benefit massively from having about six episodes cut from its production per series. We've seen so far that each episode of Oz can be broken up usually into three acts apart from this episode which seems to have been split into four and everyone gets their bit of screen time. To use Game of Thrones as an example too, the first six series of that had ten episodes and a large cast of characters and story arcs but everything in those episodes happened for a reason and progressed the story. There wasn't much filler. Orange is the New Black, sometimes you can go a couple of episodes without seeing characters at all because we're off seeing another part of a subplot which is getting more airtime than it deserves. That's not to say this show shouldn't have subplots or B-stories, they're great for breaking up the main narrative, but there is a reason why those stories are secondary and don't warrant being the focus of an entire episode. And I'm not saying that Orange is the New Black doesn't have interesting characters either, I just don't feel that it has enough of them, especially to fill 13 episodes per series at an hour long. 
As for Bad Girls, I honestly can't say that much about it as I only ever saw a little bit of it and that wasn't from the beginning so I had no idea who characters were or the relationships between characters but from what I did see it was just downright silly in places. For anybody that isn't familiar with the show, it was shown on ITV in the UK, who are the biggest independent broadcaster in the country. But it was shown in the US on BBC America before moving to Logo TV and ran from 1999 to 2006. It bears a number of similarities to us in the terms of the subjects that they cover and was well received by TV critics, it did well in TV ratings, I think it peaked at just under 9.5 million for an episode in 2000, and it even won a few TV awards. But like I say, I didn't see enough of it to really form an opinion of the show, but what I did see of it didn't do a whole lot for me. It was made by Shed Productions, who also made a show called Footballers' Wives, which is a very silly program indeed, so I don't know, maybe my view is a little clouded due to the silliness of that show to really try bad girls? But thank you for your question, Liam. That's going to do it for this episode of Inside Oz. If you've missed any episodes of the show so far, you can go back and listen to them on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or pretty much anywhere where you can listen to your podcasts. Leave a review wherever you can as it will help with the exposure for the show, and keep up to date with any goings-on at the show's Twitter and Instagram accounts by following at InsideOzPodcast, or email InsideOzPodcast at gmail.com. Episode 7 will be the penultimate episode of Series 1, Plan B, but I'm going to leave you with the soulful tones of the tortured soul that is Tobias Beecher. Catch you next time, everyone.